you please stand with me as we read the Word of God together and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We quiet our souls before you. We acknowledge that you are the one true and living God. That you are the everlasting God. The infinite God. And that right now you sit upon your throne. And you rule and reign over all of your creation. And Father, as your creatures, and even as your children, we are dependent upon you for all things. If you don't build the house, then we labor in vain. We depend upon you to build our lives. We depend upon you for our defense. We depend upon you for work, for money, and for the things that we need to sustain our lives in this world. And Father, we thank you that you are the giver of children, that you have created marriage for our good and your glory, and that one of the wonderful fruits of marriage is the gift of children. We thank you for making life this way. We thank you for the blessing of having children and grandchildren in our lives. And Father, we commend our children to you. We commend our grandchildren to you. We pray that you would be pleased to save them when they are young. That you would give them a desire for you when they are young and that desire would not leave them all of their life. Father, we pray that you would do a miracle 
in the heart of every child that is a part of this assembly. A miracle of grace. And I pray that you would strengthen us as parents and grandparents and guardians to care for our children, to raise them and to train them in the way that you call us to. And I pray that as we open your word in a few moments, that you will provide great help, that we will not only be instructed and reminded of your truth, but we will be encouraged to live it out. Father, as we think about children and as we think about this time of the year, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ was born, that a son was given. We thank you for the miracle of his birth, that he was conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit so that he is not only the Son of Man, he is also the Son of God. We thank you that we are saved by his life and his death and his glorious resurrection and that it is only because of Christ that we have hope as we live in a fallen world. And I pray that you will direct our, our gaze, our, our affections, our thoughts away from ourselves, away from the cares of this life and our fears, and direct them upon Christ. May you give your peace, may you give your grace and mercy to us as we look to you, as we worship you with glad hearts. We give ourselves to you and we give this worship service to you for your glory and for your pleasure. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I invite you to once again open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. And I would direct your attention to verses 20 and 21. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, part 6. I would like to read our two verses in your hearing as we begin our time together in the Word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. This is the sacred and holy word of God. One of the great points of dissimilarity between the world and the Christian faith is with regard to children. I would like to give you two examples. Number one, according to the world, children are often viewed as a burden. But according to the Bible, children are viewed as a blessing. We live in a culture in which it is common for people to view children as getting in the way of their careers, as spoiling their fun, and frankly, many parents simply can't wait to get their kids out of the house. To take it a step further, it is common in our culture for children to be abused, neglected, abandoned, and even murdered by their own parents. In fact, our culture has become so ungodly 
that many say that we are now living in a post-Christian society. That is true. But it is more accurate to say that we are now living in a neo-barbarian society. We have experienced advancements in medicine and technology beyond anything that we could ever have imagined. And yet morally and spiritually speaking, our nation has digressed into thinking and behavior that is barbaric. We live in a nation in which it is legal to actually murder children. Our government, which exists to protect innocent life, has actually made it lawful to take innocent life. This is inconceivable to me. We live in a country where it is extremely difficult and expensive to adopt a child, but where it is convenient and easy and cheap to abort a child. Do you realize that the leading cause of death in our nation is not heart disease, it is not cancer, it is abortion? There are about 610,000 people who die of heart disease every year. There are about 600,000 people who die of cancer every year. And there are about 1 million babies that are aborted in our country every single year. To give you more perspective on that, a million babies in a year amounts to 2,739 every single day. Nearly 3,000 babies every single day are murdered in this nation. And those who are murdering children in our country are health care providers, including doctors who take an oath to do no harm. The number of children who are killed by guns in our nation is very, very, very small compared to the number of children who are killed by doctors. And this is lawful and even celebrated in our culture. Again, I say to you, we are living in a neo-barbarian culture. Now compare this with what the Bible says about children from the life of Job and the ministry of Jesus. After enduring the loss of his wealth, of all ten of his children and his health, Job 42.12 says the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And one of the ways that God blessed the latter days of Job was by giving to him ten more children. Ten more children. And those ten children were not a burden. They were a blessing from God. And now consider Jesus. Do you realize that one of the rare occasions that we read of in the Gospels in which Jesus became angry was in a situation involving children? It was when his disciples tried to prevent children from coming to him. The Bible says, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And so in the ministry of Jesus, children were not a burden. 
They were a blessing from God. And so it is clear, dear people, that according to the Bible, children are to be valued, they are to be loved, they are to be cared for, they are to be protected as precious gifts from God. In fact, I would say this, if you are a parent or a grandparent and you have children, take moments in your life to look them in the eye and to tell them that they are gifts from God to you. Tell them that. A second example of the great dissimilarity between the world and the Christian faith is that the world focuses on the rights of children, whereas the Bible focuses on the responsibilities of children. Now, don't misunderstand what I am saying here. It is good and it is just for the rights of children to be protected from things like abuse and neglect and things that cause them harm. But the push for children's rights can easily go wrong. It can easily go off the rails when it means things like this, that children have the right to do whatever they want to do, or that children have the right to not be disciplined when necessary, or that children have the right to not be under authority, the authority of their parents or the authority of anyone, or that children have the right to be irresponsible, to be disrespectful, disobedient, and free to express the sinful desires of their heart any way they choose. Children who are left to themselves, who are not taught, who are not trained, who are not disciplined when necessary, will live lives that dishonor God and will be self-destructive. Now, in great contrast to this, the Bible focuses on the responsibilities of children, which is exactly what we have in the passage that is before us here in Colossians chapter 3. For the past few months, it has been our great privilege to study Colossians 3 together. In verses 1 to 17, Paul addresses the church as a whole. But then in verse 18, he turns a corner and he begins to address specific groups of people within the church, namely wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and masters. These six groups of people have at least two things in common. Number one, they represent three relationships all within the Christian home. And then also each of these three relationships involve distinctive roles that each group is to live out. And these distinctive roles involve authority and submission to authority by God's good and wise design. Now, we have spent the last five messages looking at that first relationship within the Christian home, wives and husbands, in verses 18 and 19. And now this morning, we will begin to look at the second relationship within the Christian home, children and parents, in verses 20 and 21. As we did with wives and husbands, we came to a very slow pace, and we're going to do the same thing as we address the Christian family with respect to children and parents. There is so much for us to learn here. This is so practical, so helpful. We don't want to hurry through it. And so if you are a child, if you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, if you are a guardian, if you work with children, if you know children, if you plan on having children, and that's just about everybody, 
then this passage is for you. It is for you. As we concentrate on verse 20, we are going to look at it under two main headings. And you can see this on your sermon notes. The first main heading is God's will for children. And the second main heading is God's motivation for children. Both of these are found in verse 20. We begin with point number one, God's will for children. And would you please observe that the first word in the verse is children. At this point in his letter, Paul is directly speaking to children, to children in the church at Colossae. And so this verse is not so much about children as it is written to children, written to them directly. Now, let me say about, a word about the age of these children. What, what, what is their age? The Greek term for children that Paul uses does not define by itself their precise age. But based upon the context of our passage, we could say that these children were certainly not infants. They're certainly not little toddlers because they would have to be old enough to intellectually understand Paul's instruction to them here in verse 20. And so the age of these children would probably begin around the time of what we call school age and would extend through the teenage years before they enter into adulthood. And so not babies, not toddlers, but school age going through the teenage years into the period of adulthood. Now, before we look at what Paul says to children, and that's very important and we will look at it, we need to first say some things about children. Specifically, there are two things that are presupposed about these children to whom Paul writes, which require our attention. And with the rest of our time this morning, we are going to focus on the first presupposition, which is letter A in our outline. These children are Christian children. So what kind of children is Paul addressing in this verse? He is not addressing all children here, but very specifically Christian children. And the fact that these are Christian children is made plain to us in at least three ways in the text. First, by the broad context of the book. To whom did Paul write this letter? If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 2, look there for just a moment and look at to whom Paul is writing this letter. He says, chapter 1, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so this letter is not written to the entire city at Colossae. It is written very specifically, very directly to the saints at Colossae, some of whom were children. Secondly, in the more immediate context of chapter 3, Paul is addressing the church as a whole in verses 1 through 17. And then in verse 18, going through chapter 4 and verse 1, he addresses specific groups of people within the church. They are members of the church, and one of those groups 
his children. And so it is assumed that these children were members of the church in Colossae. Thirdly, the fact that these are Christian children is also made plain to us by the very instructions that Paul gives to them in verse 20. Children are instructed to obey their parents, but why? What is the motivation? He says, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This instruction, this motivation implies, it assumes that these are Christian children. Now hold your place there in Colossians 3 and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 to the parallel passage in Ephesians 6 and verse 1. As we have said many times, Ephesians and Colossians are sister epistles. They are both written by Paul from the same place at about the same time, and the content of these two letters is very similar. And it's very similar, especially in Paul's teaching about marriage and family and parenting and so forth. And so in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, look at how he writes it. Children, the same way as in Colossians 3, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Now notice how he says it, to obey your parents in the Lord. You could never say that about an unbeliever. An unbeliever cannot do anything that is in the Lord. One must be in Christ to do anything that is in the Lord. And so now back to Colossians chapter 3. So the first presupposition is that these children are Christian children. And what a wonderful presupposition that is. Do you realize what this means? It means that children can be converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is great news. Now I want to linger here and think about the idea of childhood evangelism. This is something that requires very careful thinking because there is much confusion in our day, about childhood evangelism. Confusion in this area is not exceptional, but rather it is the norm, unfortunately. At least that is my experience. And confusion at this very point can be very dangerous to the souls of children. And the last thing that we would ever want for our children is for them to be confused or deceived about where they stand before God. And so we are dealing with the most important thing about our children, their souls and their relationship with God. Now the confusion regarding childhood evangelism falls into two broad approaches, with one being more prevalent than the other. You'll see these on your notes. Number one, the most common wrong approach to childhood evangelism is found in the modern popular decisionistic methods of evangelism, which, by the way, are used for both adults and children alike. And the way this methodology is utilized with children goes something like this. A child is asked if he or she wants to go to heaven when they die. The child is then told that he or she needs to invite Jesus into their hearts 
The child is then asked to raise their hand or walk an aisle and then repeat a prescribed prayer, after which they are given immediate assurance of their salvation and is shortly thereafter baptized. That is very, very common. In fact, it is so common that there are people who might be surprised that anyone would ever object to it. Now, beloved, I say this with all the kindness of my heart. That approach to evangelism is unbiblical. It is wrong and it is dangerous. But it is by far the most popular method of childhood evangelism used today and has been for the better part of 200 years since it was invented by Charles Finney. Now, let me be quick to add that many who use this method of evangelism have a genuine zeal for the salvation of souls and are very well-intentioned. And so we want to acknowledge that. But nonetheless, good intentions are not enough. It is not enough for somebody to merely have good intentions if the method they are using is dangerous. And so this is not a biblical method for evangelism for anyone, much less for children who are very prone to being deceived and or manipulated. It is very easy, very easy to get a child to raise their hand, to walk an aisle, to invite Jesus into their heart. With just a little bit of persuasion, a little bit of pressure, you can do that. And I can do that. It is easy to manufacture decisions from children. We have the power to do that. But what we don't have the power to do is to bring about genuine conversion to Jesus Christ and regeneration in the heart. Because that is a work that only God can do. Only God. No evangelist, no matter how gifted or skilled, has the power to produce salvation in anyone. No evangelist has the power to produce repentance in the heart of another person or saving faith in the life of another person. These are works that God and God alone can do in the life of a child. And so when you think about salvation in children, dear people, it is a miracle. It is a miracle which requires the sovereign grace of God. And so it is very critical to understand at this point in our message that salvation is never manufactured by evangelistic technique. Never. And yet that is the common approach. Salvation is never manufactured by evangelistic technique. Listen, speaking as a parent of five children, if there was anything that I could do in my own power to make my children Christians, I would do it in a heartbeat. Absolutely. No questions asked. But the truth of the matter is, there is nothing that you nor I can do to make our children, or anyone else for that matter, Christians. 
We can no more make our children Christians than we can create the universe. We don't have that kind of power. These are things that only God can do. To put it as simply as I can, only God can make a person a Christian. We can't do that. No evangelist can do that, not even an apostle. You can't make your children to see themselves as sinners in the sight of God. You can't make your children desire God. You can't change their hearts. We are impotent when it comes to that. And so how then did these children that Paul addresses in the church at Colossae, how did they become Christians? Well, it wasn't because their parents were Christians. Becoming a Christian is not something that you inherit from your parents. It wasn't because they were baptized as infants and were somehow brought into a state of grace. And it certainly wasn't because they walked an aisle or repeated a prescribed prayer. It was because God convicted them of their sin. Because God effectually called them to faith in Christ. And because God regenerated their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, children become Christians the same way that adults become Christians. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, there is a second wrong approach to childhood evangelism. One that is far less common than the first. It is the view that children can't be genuinely converted to Christ. And those who would hold this kind of a view would generally hold it because it is an overreaction to all of the abuse within childhood evangelism. But we know this view isn't correct because the children that Paul addresses in Ephesians and Colossians are Christian children. And so children can be genuinely converted to the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God. So let's now think more deeply about childhood evangelism. Dennis Gunderson has written a very helpful little book on childhood conversion called Your Child's Profession of Faith. I, I, I commend it to you. It's a little paperback, very small, very easy to read. Dennis Gunderson, Your Child's Profession of Faith. The preface of the book is written by Jim Elliff, and he asks this question in the preface. Can children be converted at a young age? Yes, asserts the author. Can we know with certainty that they are converted at a young age? Often not. Often not. That is a very important distinction to make. Yes, it is possible for children to be converted to Christ, even at a young age, but as parents, we can't often know with certainty if our young children have truly been converted. The genuineness of a child's profession of faith in Christ will oftentimes not be proven until later in life, until a crisis moment occurs, such as when they become teenagers and face all of the pressures of following ungodly peers and the world or following Christ. 
or when they go to college and they are faced with all kinds of ungodly worldviews from professors and other students, if they have truly been converted to Christ, which way will they go when they arrive in college? They will follow Christ over against the world. And so as parents, there is a fine line that we are to walk when it comes to evangelizing our children. On the one hand, we want to be careful not to give our children a false assurance of salvation. On your notes, look at the quote from Dennis Gunderson. He says, once a false confidence takes root in a soul, how easily it remains until old age. And he's exactly right. I can't tell you how many people I have met who fit that description. And it is a deep, deep grief in my heart as a Christian and as a pastor how many adults I have met who are ungodly, yet who claim that they were saved when they were children. They don't give any evidence now of saving faith in Christ. They don't obey the will of God. They don't hate their sin. They don't love God. They don't love the Bible. They don't give a rip about God. And yet, they think they will go to heaven when they die. This is largely due to corrupted methods of childhood evangelism. And so on the one hand, we want to be careful not to give children a false assurance of salvation that they will take with them into their adult years, maybe even to the grave. But on the other hand, we want to be careful not to get in the way and hinder our children from coming to Christ if God is genuinely working in their souls. And so when your children make any positive response to the gospel, encourage them. Encourage them. We should encourage them every time they make positive steps with respect to the gospel. Now with the rest of our time, what I want to do is provide four biblical helps on how to evangelize children. Certainly more could be said, but these are four things that really stand out in my mind. Number one is teach and expose your children to the Word of God on a regular basis, especially focusing on the gospel. In other words, when your children are learning about God at home or at church, you need to go much further than the veggie tales. Right? That's not adequate. I'm not saying that throw out veggie tales, but if that's all that you give to your children, that is not adequate. Also, don't oversimplify your teaching by simply telling watered-down Bible stories to your children. Just giving them little watered-down stories about Noah's ark and, 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 and Jesus multiplying food and, and those kinds of things. Or, or, or don't oversimplify your teaching by just telling your children Jesus loves you and leaving it at that. You are to teach your children 
the Word of God as diligently, as thoroughly, and as clearly as you possibly can. You are to explain the gospel to your children as clearly as you possibly can. And once you've done it once, do it again and do it again and do it again, not necessarily on the same day, but over the course of time. Teach your children the gospel whenever you have an opportunity to do so. Obviously, you want to use language that doesn't go over their heads. You probably shouldn't tell a five-year-old when you talk about the death of Jesus that it was a penal substitutionary atonement. They're not going to know what you're talking about. And so use language that is age-appropriate. But with that said, do not withhold truth from your children. Do not withhold truth, especially truth about the gospel. Teach the whole counsel of God to your children. Teach your children what the Bible says about God, that God is the creator of the universe, that God is holy, that God is sovereign, that God is wrath, that God is love, that God is just, that God is good. In our family right now, we've been making our way through the attributes of God in our dinner time. We just completed last night the incommunicable attributes of God with all five of our children. What a wonderful thing it is to teach our children about who God is and what he is like. Teach them what the Bible says about humanity. We didn't evolve. We are creatures made in the image of God. And then also teach them that we are fallen and sinful. Teach them that because of sin, we deserve divine punishment. And then teach them about Christ. Show them as best as you can the beauty, the glory, the saving power of Jesus Christ. That he is the only savior of sinners. Call your children to repentance. As I sit at the table with my children, I will, on a regular basis, ask them, where are you with God? Where are you spiritually? Call them to repentance. Call them to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And here's a little suggestion for you. This is December 1st. We have just begun the month of December. If you start reading the Gospel of Luke today and read one chapter a day, guess what day you will finish? Christmas Eve, because there are 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Make that a family project that you as a family will read one chapter from the Gospel of Luke every day all the way up until Christmas Eve. That is a wonderful way to teach your children about the Lord Jesus Christ. Take them directly to the Word of God, to the Gospels. Number two, a second biblical help on how to evangelize children. Demonstrate for them a godly example and pray often for their salvation. Now, there are no such things as a, a perfect parent. I'm not one, my wife isn't one, and we haven't met any either. No perfect parents. But with that said, we are still to provide a consistent and a godly example for our children to follow. 
Your children should be able to look at you and see what a Christian really looks like, what the Christian life really looks like. You should show your children with your life what it looks like to love God, what it looks like to hate sin, what it looks like to follow Christ. And you are to pray, you should pray often for your children, for their souls, for their spiritual well-being. On your notes, look at the quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's the first sentence that really complements this point. The rest of it's very important as well, but look at what he says at the beginning. I cannot tell how much I owe to the prayers of my good mother. Would our children be able to say that about us? I cannot tell how much I owe to the prayers of my good mother, my good father, my good grandmother, my good grandfather. And then because the rest of it's so good, I had to include it. Here's what he says. I remember her once praying. Now think about your mother praying like this. Now, Lord, if my children go on in sin, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold on Christ and claim him as their personal Savior. Do you see the imagery? Spurgeon's mother is here. She's saying, I have taught my children so thoroughly, I've prayed for them so thoroughly that they would be saved, that if they perish, it will not be from ignorance. And on the day of judgment, as they are damned for their unbelief, the mother will say, Amen. Amen. You rejected the Savior. I will bear witness to that. That is strong. Well, a third biblical help on how to evangelize children, always remember that while you are responsible to evangelize your children, you are not responsible for their salvation. And that's something that we need to know and be reminded of time and time again. As a Christian parent, your number one focus is the souls of your children. You are to be an evangelist in the home. There is a mission field overseas. There is a mission field in our local community. But as a Christian parent, your most important mission field is under your roof. It is in your own home with your own children. And as Christian parents, you are the most important preachers that your children will ever hear. You are responsible to evangelize them, to do it in love and with grace. But you are not responsible for their salvation. On your notes, there is a quote from the Puritan Richard Mather. It's a very strong quote, and he imagines children on the day of judgment speaking to their parents who never spiritually led them. And look at what he writes. It is so riveting. All this that we here suffer is through you. This is the children speaking to their parents who never taught them the gospel. You should have taught us the things of God and did not. You should have restrained us from sin and corrected us and you did not. You were the means of our original corruption and guiltiness. 
and yet you never showed any competent care that we might be delivered from it. Woe unto us that we had such carnal and careless parents, and woe unto you that had no more compassion and pity to prevent the everlasting misery of your own children. End quote. That is strong. Woe to parents like that. Woe to parents who never tell their children about God, who never open the word of God, who never teach them the gospel. And so I exhort you to be faithful, to teach your children the gospel. Be faithful to evangelize your children to point them to Christ, to call them to Christ, to call them to repentance. But always remember that only God can save them. The salvation of your children does not depend upon you. It does not depend upon the perfection of your parenting. It depends upon the grace of God. And then fourthly, If your children grow up rejecting the gospel, never give up hope and never stop praying for them. I know that some of you in this congregation have adult children that are not where you would want them to be spiritually. And so what do you do? Do you despair? Do you give up? You don't. Don't give up hope. As long as they are alive, there is hope. And never stop praying for them. Let me give you an example to encourage you. One of the most significant figures in church history was a man named St. Augustine. He lived during the 4th and 5th centuries. In fact, his influence was so powerful over church history that He was the titan of church history for about a thousand years. By the time you get to Martin Luther in the 16th century, Martin Luther was a monk in the Augustinian order going back a thousand years to St. Augustine. But Augustine didn't become a Christian until he was the age of 31. In spite of the fact that he was raised by a very godly mother whose name was Monica, Augustine became engrossed in sexual sin. He embraced a false religion as a young man. He lived with a woman, had a child out of wedlock. He was a grief to his mother. But God eventually answered the prayers of Monica. And Augustine came to true faith in Christ. And before Monica died, she told her son, Augustine, and the quote is on your notes. There was indeed one thing for which I wished to tarry a little in this life. And that was that I might see you, an Orthodox Christian, before I died. My God has answered this more than abundantly. So that I see you now made his servant and spurning all earthly happiness. What more am I to do here? So if you have unbelieving adult children, do not give hope. Do not give up hope. 
and do not stop praying for them. Perhaps God will be pleased to save them as he saved Augustine. Well, it is our privilege this morning to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and to celebrate his great sacrifice for us in the Lord's Supper. Even as we have focused on the gospel and evangelism today, the gospel is good news. It is the good news that the holy and righteous God of heaven, who while he has been offended by our sin, instead of giving us what we deserve, namely eternal punishment, he has provided his own dear beloved son to be the sacrifice for our sins so that everyone who believes in him will have everlasting life and will not perish. If you are a believer here this morning, the Lord's Supper is available for you to celebrate, to enjoy, to glory in. If you are an unbeliever, we thank God that you are here, but this is not for you. And so we would ask that whenever the plates come your way, that you would simply pass them to the next person in your aisle. But for those of us who will partake of this ordinance, let's take some time, confess sin, prepare our hearts so that we might partake of this supper in a manner that is worthy of our Lord.